Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Cloud Wars Live, where we discuss today's digital revolution, all the remarkable things going on with that. And more recently, as you know, we've also been talking about some of the other events in the world that have been impacting that. The impact of COVID-19 now seems to become, uh, in some ways, an accelerant for the digital revolution, as that's how we're all living, learning, working, and uh, engaging with each other. And today, we're delighted, as always, to have back one of our monthly digital all-stars, Wayne Saden. Wayne is a former CIO, CTO, CDO, and now he advises CEOs and boards of directors on how to weave digital into their overall business strategy to become a digital business, run effectively, be more successful, take better care of their customers. Wayne, good morning to you. It's always great to have you here at Cloud Wars Live. Good morning, Bob. As always, it's great to be here talking about how digital is changing everything, and quite frankly, how COVID is changing everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wayne, I look forward to the continued uh, impact of digital on everything. I hope, uh, I hope I'm not out of line if I say I look forward to the day when we can stop talking about COVID's impact on everything. But, uh, you know, here in mid-2020, there's, there's no doubt it, is, uh, it has rocked the world, and it's been fascinating to watch how companies and individuals respond to that. Yeah, Bob, I got to say, I don't think in our lifetimes we're going to stop talking about what COVID did. Hopefully, we'll be talking about it retrospectively. Yeah. But the rate of change, the amount of things that are changing in the world are structurally reshaping business, society, education, the family, friends, where people live, how people live. You know, I'm sitting here in my beach house because it's the most socially distanced place I know. I got the beach down there, which of course is closed, uh, so we don't get too close to each other outside. And I've got the place to ride my bike over there. And I'm quite frankly, far from a lot of clients and not thinking about when airplanes, I just hit 2 million miles on an airline. They sent me a note that I've hit 2 million lifetime miles. And I thought, when am I ever gonna need that upgrade? And so, you know, this morning I was looking through the Wall Street Journal, just sitting here getting ready for us to start. And let's see, Brooks Brothers declared bankruptcy this morning because who's going to wear a suit? I actually dressed up for this. I'm wearing a shirt with a collar. Um, I learned that one of the private equity firms is buying an insurance company, an investment firm. There's a story about how the discount airlines are going this far, where the full price airlines are going this far. So, so just think about in one one minute of reading the journal, I'm seeing five or six industries that are being changed. Um, when Sean Amarati spoke, and I'll just say that over the weekend I had some time, so I actually spent time digging into the other digital all-stars. I often hear a little bit, but I was able to hear hours of speaking. And Sean talked about a restaurant that reimagined itself. So just imagine something as simple as a restaurant changing the way they do business. Um, I'm seeing that here in Galveston, Texas. The food trucks are multiplying because I can drive up, get my food, and go home. So how do you take advantage of these things in the corporate world, in the board of directors world, in the CEO world? And how you do that is going to change the trajectory over the next couple of months, couple of years. Um, and, and so at the end of this, whenever the vaccine happens and we all get uh, the ability to come out safely, there are gonna be companies that are flattened there are gonna be companies that are just bumping along. They've managed to hold together because they're an essential industry. And others are gonna be like this. Yeah. And so the advice that we, I wanna talk about today is how do you avoid this and avoid this and avoid and, and look for that. Yeah. And that's what I hope we can talk about based on some other ideas. Now, Wayne, that sounds great. I, I think about it sometimes too, You know, part of what you said, this changing world, um, next, our next door neighbors here, have two little boys and one of them is four years old and right we you know human beings don't really start to remember things i believe around the age of four or five well all he will know at some point is this new world and you know that'll happen for so many young people so you know, this is the world they're growing up in and uh i i think the whole digital impact and your counsel there about what companies ceos boards of directors should be looking out to become, you know, so that they can become one of those, you know, high performers going forward is great. And Wayne, I thought your idea for what you wanted to discuss today was, uh, was very interesting, sort of riffing off 
some of those recent episodes of Cloud Wars Live you've heard. So it looked like you had some thoughts from Sean Amirati, from Tony Uphoff, and Bonnie Tinder that you wanted to amplify on and give your own take. So uh, what's on the top of your mind with those, Wayne? Well, first of all, it was really cool seeing all the other digital all-stars. When you and I started doing this, I was the first or second, I don't know, and it was kind of lonely. Who's going to listen to us? Who, who cares about this stuff? But I know I've gotten a lot of feedback. And now that I see you keep bringing more people on and, and broadening the, the, uh, the stable of, of commentators. So I find it fascinating. And I'm going to make sure that I spend more time watching everybody else's material because it really amplifies some of the stuff we're talking about. And we all fit together, even though I've never met any of the others. So that's the first observation. I need to meet some of these people, at least uh, digitally. Mm -hmm. The second one is I got to upgrade my home studio. Everybody else has nicer mics, nicer cameras, nicer everything. And clearly, I'm an itinerant consultant. I carry it around, but I'm going to set up a home studio so we can take a picture like the other guys. So that's the second observation. Um, let, let's start with, with Sean, because I think he had the, the broadest perspective in the presentation that I saw. He talks about innovation at the corporate level. So my message to boards and CEOs, my normal audience, is what are you going to be in 18 months, in two years? There is no longer a five-year horizon. We talked about five-year strategic plans. and Companies had you know, the 15-year plan and the 20-year plan. I think our plans now are what's going to happen tomorrow in the newspaper. Are we opening? Are we closing? Are kids going back to school? Are they staying home? Has there been a new drug discovered that will cause everybody to want to change their behavior? Um, and so as companies, we've got to be planning for the longer term, but I think we've now redefined the longer term to be 18 to 24 months. And so the idea that we're going to do a five-year plan is, in my opinion, nonsense, because nobody can make that prediction. So the horizon is now dramatically shrunk, and we've got to be thinking about it. So if you're a board of directors, you typically are an anchor. You're a drag in a, in a non-tech, non-cutting-edge company. To the listeners, I got to remind everybody, I don't tend to work with the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons of the world or the investment banks on Wall Street. My clients are mid-America le legacy businesses. They make things, they ship things, they sell things, they install things, they dig holes and they fill them up. Legacy industry struggling with, am I a digital business really when I run a fleet of trucks? or a fleet of warehouses or manufacturing plants or construction companies. So um, that's my audience and that's who I'm talking to. Boards of those companies don't tend to be cutting edge technologists from Seattle or Silicon Valley or, or even from lower Manhattan. And I'll put in a plug for the qualified technology expert. There are a number of people who would like to help boards change their way of thinking, but it's not common. So let's just say that. So if you're a board, your normal response is, we got to conserve cash. We got to stop. Don't do anything because we got to put money in the bank. Well, what I've seen with some of my clients is if you have a business model in an essential industry, not an airline, not a hotel, finding a line of credit is not impossible. Finding a way to keep your operation running at some level is not impossible. So, okay, boards, we're past that stuff. You got your revolver set up. You got your alternate funding. You got potential investors. So now what are you going to do with that pot of money? Don't just keep it around forever. Invest it. Invest it in the future. And so I want to make it clear to boards and CEOs that you need to be preparing for the future as you envision it. And one thing that I think is clear, when you look at the Wall Street Journal, companies are failing and being acquired. Business models are transforming. So if you're prepared to acquire your competitors, if you're prepared to acquire companies like yours in different geographies, if you're prepared to, to acquire people in adjacent industries, if you install something, maybe you should make it and become more vertical integrated. What If you're in this, uh, the business that depends on a long supply chain, how can you buy a company that makes something in America? or that warehouse is something in America so that your supply chain is not as variable as your competitors. So rethink your business and then be prepared to do an acquisition. And, and so what you need to do to prepare for an acquisition, unless you've already got 
the process infrastructure, the technical infrastructure, the people infrastructure, which my clients typically do not have. Um, we'll talk about that in a minute. You've got to be investing in it. And that means what I call digital optimization. Uh, Sean used a little different terminology, but let's be clear. There is digital transformation, which rethinks your products, your markets, your customer experience, your employee experience, your culture. That is a change in what you do. Then there's digital optimization, which is doing what you do, but doing it better and faster and cheaper. They're different. One of them starts kind of at the C-suite, the CIO and the head of marketing and the COO get together and figure out how to do this. And they push it up to the CEO and the board. Hey, we can do this better. The other one cannot and should not be driven by the middle managers. And I mean, C-suite, it starts at the board. What do we think we're, we're going to be doing? You know, my, my example from many, many episodes ago was, if you saw yourself as a buggy whip manufacturer, when they introduced cars, you went away. If you saw yourself as a maker of leather goods and switched to driving gloves, maybe you could prosper. So what business are you really in and how would it be reimagined by the pandemic? So digital transformation, which I think is where Sean helps people and probably a hell of a lot better than I can, um, is that the, my message is start here and work down and get your business leaders involved in that reimagining. Digital optimization, we could be doing now, even while you're rethinking what you want to be when you grow up. Here's why. It throws off cash. If I can remove the manual processes, if I can remove the excessive controls, if I can remove all the places there's friction in my system, I can drop money to the bottom line. When I work with clients, typically who want to digitally transform, I want to be this and I want to be that they discovered that their infrastructure can't handle it. I have a client I worked with that wanted to get big in digital retailing, their traditional B2B, B2C, manufacturer of high-tech gear. And when we looked at them, they could put in all the really cool stuff at the front end, but their back-end manufacturing and logistics was so out of date that they couldn't keep the front-end system informed about what was in stock and what the lead times were. So when they said, we want to transform this, I had to come back and tell them their level of technical debt was such, their level of old systems and old processes was such, that first you need to rebuild that. Once you've built the foundation, the firm foundation, a digital optimization, that then prepares you for the next level. And if you're going to acquire, ask yourself this question. Is my back room, back room meaning HR, IT, accounting, finance, cash management, and so on, what would happen if I doubled the volume through those operations? In many companies, the answer is I would double their staff. And people, by the way, forget when you double the staff, you typically add another layer of management. So it's maybe more than doubling. If your strategy says, if we double the company, we double the back room, you got the wrong back room. And I will say this, because I say it all the time to C-suites and boards. If you got the wrong back room, it's not their fault. It's your fault. Because as I say, you get the CIO you settle for as a CEO. You get the controller you settle for. You need people within the company, and I think Sean talks about this, that are internal entrepreneurs, that are trying to change the way you operate the company. And so we want to be very thoughtful about that and empower the middle managers to build what you need to get you to the next level. Um, Sean made one more comment. I got one more thing to say about Sean's comment. The amount of data that is locked up in your corporate databases is enormous. Now, I did air quotes because most corporate databases are access databases on people's desktops. They're stranded little, I got SQL Server, I got Oracle. Yeah, but there's one little database over there and one little database over there and that division has theirs. And by the way, the most common database tool in American business today is Excel. I've had clients that said, I have a problem with Excel. There's a million row limit. Why are you running a million row Excel spreadsheet? Well, that's where I keep all my transactions. Ah, 
So when you are a CEO, when you're a board member, you don't recognize that the data may be there, but it is unreachable. And so Sean talked about the notion of the value of data locked up. Um, I have clients that work in various industries, uh, logistics, manufacturing, uh, construction. And if you could take the data that's in all those disparate databases and put them together, and I could analyze every product manufacturing line, I could analyze every construction project that I'm doing, and know in real time where we're making money, where we're losing money, where we have risk, where we have things we don't know about that's going on, especially in a far-flung company, we could change the way managers manage two ways. One, a lot of controls in companies are designed around the notion that I can protect the company by protecting the checkbook. So how many times does the CEO or the CFO make, approve the silliest little decisions? Now, does that make them bad CEOs, bad CFOs? No. They have no way to get data out of their system except the monthly report the quarterly board presentation. So they're naturally distrustful. If I've got 5,000 or 10,000 people in the field, how do I know they're not wasting our money? So we put in what's called preventive controls. You can't do this unless three people approve it. And that might've been fine when we moved at the speed of monthly and the speed of quarterly. But now we're moving at the speed of right now. And at the speed of right now, you can't have the executive vice president or the divisional president approving everything. However, you can't let it get out of control. So for those of you who have not thought about this, put in detective controls, not preventive controls. If the boss got a report every day of how many people were hired by job site or by factory department, and every day could see that if they wanted to, and anytime they wanted, could go click, 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 or see a threshold. If it goes up by more than 3% a week, I want to see it. Now they've got the ability to say, in broad, my 10,000 people are not bankrupting me. And then they can focus on a hotspot. I got a problem. Let me look at it. Let me go call that person and say, what are you doing? Why are we doing this? So don't build a giant bureaucracy of preventive controls that all comes up either to the headquarters, to the CEO, or more insidiously, to IT, to accounting, to HR, to internal audit. I've worked for companies where anytime the field messes up, somebody in IT bails them out or somebody in HR bails them out. Well, we should stop doing that because it creates a, a sticky, non-scalable organization. Stuff gets caught in the gears as we go from business unit up over to some functional department, up over back to the business and back down. It creates costs. It removes accountability and creates a bureaucracy that none of us want. So if we can provide that system that puts all the data in one place, that collects it from the field and populates it in real time, when did Billy show up for work today? Because the phone is geocoded or because they've used biometrics. Is that equipment running? Is it running for the right number of hours? We have four backhoes in this project. Do we need four? Well, look, three of them run half the time and one hasn't run in three weeks. So let's move it. If we had the ability to put this data in a database and update it regularly, management could see what they needed to to feel comfortable and the field could change the way they work. So I agree completely with Sean. The amount of data, the value of data locked up for internal purposes, for understanding your customers, for understanding your markets is enormous. And we don't, we don't appreciate it, so we haven't yet looked at that as a side effect of a modern ERP. And that's a, you know, that's a terrific uh, set of new perspectives on what Sean had talked about. And I, I wanted just to add a couple points to that. One is, I think what you have brought up here, you know, if you can create this environment where the data is in one place, you can see what's going on, you can have that forward-looking view, then that makes possible the the premise that Sean was offering, which was don't just uh, reinvent the business you used to have, reinvent and reimagine your company, reimagine what you can do, reimagine you know, your goals and objectives. And overall too, I think that's a perfect jumping off point. I, I wanted to read now a word from our sponsor, BMC. In a world that's changing faster than ever before, the biggest challenge for businesses is creating fabulous customer experiences. 
That objective requires actionable insights and real-time agility from one end of your business to the other. And at BMC, they call this the autonomous digital enterprise, and they've put together a set of solutions to help you anticipate what's coming, adjust accordingly, and acknowledge those changes from end to end. To start your journey to the autonomous digital enterprise, visit bmc.com slash ADE. So Wayne, it's, uh, you know, I always find listening to you, it's, it's extremely helpful. And some people might say after they're listening, they say, well, that's obvious. But it isn't obvious. It's obvious when somebody says it and somebody describes what ought to be done, describes what the reality is and describes how you do that from to thing that needs to happen here. So um, I, I hope you continue hammering on some of those messages to people. It's simple stuff. I like the idea, but you know, if the, if the back office can't handle that, if you double, it's not their fault, it's yours. You know, they've been set up not to be able to grow, but to, to maintain the status quo. And the um, Cloud Wars newsletter that went out this morning, uh, the subject line was the relevancy cycles are here. And I think that's this notion we don't have, as you said, you know, months and months and quarters and quarters to get these things right, given the current reality that everybody's in and the, the failure rate for businesses, the success rates, the um, choices that consumers have or business customers have. There's so many choices and they're so much more demanding now. So I think one of those tests for CEOs and board members is how do we stay constantly relevant in a world around us that is changing faster than it ever has before. And I think that uh, within that context, Wayne, some of the things that you wanted to talk about with 5G and AR and additive manufacturing really bring alive some of these possibilities of sort of the to destination in this from to change that you're describing. Well, first of all, I haven't read the newsletter yet because I was getting ready for this, okay. but I will. Um, I, I will say this. So if you're a, C, a CIO listening to this and you're not sure what the company strategy is because nobody's sure what the company strategy is, what should you be doing as a CIO? So here's a message to CIOs, which I rarely give. Your job as the CIO in the COVID world is to give the board and the C-suite optionality. Give them the ability to jump here or there or there or faster or slower or left or right because we're not sure where they're going. So if you build a system, and I'll pick on old ERP systems, SAP, Oracle, the old big mainframe systems and monolithic systems of days past, they were based around efficiency. How many widgets per hour can I produce? And can I produce them the same way on every manufacturing line around the world? And that was the mantra, volume efficiency. You know, why did we run out of toilet paper, by the way? Let's think about that. If you look at the aggregate number of toilet sessions in the world, they didn't change, but we ran out of toilet paper. Why? I used to be in the paper industry, the converting industry. We took big things and made them into little things. The people who make toilet paper have machines set up to run at 99.9% .9 efficiency. And so when you're making industrial rolls of toilet paper that big, you have no way to make rolls of toilet paper that big. If your machines are set up to slit the paper that wide, you cannot slit them this wide because all of a sudden you need to have a lot more material handling added to the end. And so when we optimize our business for efficiency, we are trading effectiveness. We are trading the ability to pivot. We are trading the ability to serve the specific and changing needs of our customer base. So make no mistake about it. They're both right, depending on what the situation is. If I was running to run my toilet paper making equipment, I don't want to be able to change roll sizes every day. I want to put that paper on and not change that machine for two years. But that limits what we can do. So I think a lot of companies are rethinking the supply chain. Now, as IT people, the beauty of it is we work in insubstantial things. We don't have to buy paper slitters and material handling rolls and things that come out of China on boats. It's software. We can build whatever we want. So if you're the CIO locked into this efficiency mindset, how can I make my department 4% more efficient by doing everything the same? You're doing it wrong. Stop doing that. Be able to say, tomorrow everybody's working from home. 
So your refresh cycle of PCs that refreshes them every eight months is wrong. How do you build a system that accommodates that? So be thinking, if I'm building an ERP, please don't build the old monolithic, I'm gonna be efficient, build a system that gives the board, that gives the CEO the ability to say, we make this kind of widget, but I wanna make that kind of widget now. Or we make widgets and now I wanna sell them retail over the internet. Or we make widgets in that country, but now I wanna make them in this country. So as a CIO, absent information from your board and your C-suite, because they may not know either, don't be working to optimize efficiency, work to optimize effectiveness. Wayne, you know, that's, that's such a good point. And I think maybe there's, uh, you know, one way to look at it as you were describing that is, you know, some people might be thinking about why can't we stay in the efficiency game? Well, in the past, when customers, whether they're consumers or business customers, tended to buy whatever you were willing to make, that was fine. But now the, the balance of power is tipped and it's the consumers or the business customers saying, this is what I want. Who has it? then the efficiency game is an anchor around your neck that's going to sink you. And instead, the effective thing that you've talked to, how do you pivot? How do you change where you make, what you make, how big you make, where you slice that paper? And also, Wayne, I had to congratulate you on the, the great term that you used uh, to talk about an important, ubiquitous uh, situation, but I have never heard it put that way, toilet sessions. That was uh, very well said. Hey, I'm an engineer at heart. We have to think in terms of productivity. Uh, but, but, but so when we look at all of this stuff, I'm going to say another thing to CIOs. Back in the old days, when we were implementing mainframe-based ERPs and when we started to move off into big decentralized boxes, we were short of resources. You know, people ask me, because I lived through Y2K, why didn't you just make all the dates bigger? Why, why were you so stupid? When I started doing this, a mainframe had 4K of memory, 4K, 1,000 bytes. We fed them on punch cards. So when I tell you that, if I, had, I was a banking guy then, I had 400,000 date fields in my system. If I made 400,000 fields twice as big times the millions or billions of transactions and records, we wouldn't have had a big enough computer. So back when SAP and Oracle, the traditional ERPs were designed, we lived in that world. A CIO in 2020 does not live in that world anymore. The amount of processing power I can buy in the cloud and I can buy on demand and I can scale up and scale down and I don't have to go buy stuff and put it on fork trucks and rack it and stack it and blah, blah, blah. I can now be saying, I can give you both. If I put in, and I'm doing some very modern ERPs for some clients, CRMs and ERPs, nothing stops those systems from supporting an efficient manufacturing process. But at the same time, because I'm not coding everything in a proprietary coding language that's 30 years old, I'm using a graphical workflow designer. And if you wanna change the workflow, you open up a screen, there's a flow chart on the screen, you add a box, you put the name of the function in it, you put the when you're going to go there and what they're going to have to do, click, test it, and now you deploy. So if you are locked into, and again, my favorite topic is technical debt. If you've got this enormous overhang of old stuff, whether it's your toilet paper factory or your IT environment, you've got to be investing in more flexibility. And you have to think about what Tony Uphoff says a lot, and we talk about Industry 4.0 and new manufacturing. That's what he's talking about. We've got to be able to put these pieces together in our factory more flexibly, which doesn't mean we can't make them efficient, but at the same time, because we can reprogram them in ways we couldn't. We can now say we're very efficient at making that, but now we can be efficient at making that other thing over here. And so 30, 40 years ago, when we designed a lot of our industrial infrastructure, which is both the physical infrastructure and the IT infrastructure, we had to make those trade-offs. When machines were dumb and you programmed with a wrench and a hammer, changing them was getting people with wrenches and hammers. Now you change them by transmitting a new code, whether it's your car, whether it's your paper mill, whether it's your milling machine and lathe, whether it's your additive manufacturer. So when I hear Tony talk, I'm an old manufacturing person. Uh, my first job was manufacturing engineering before I realized computers were less greasy and messy. And so it resonates with me. 
But when Tony talked, he talked about 5G and its impact on manufacturing. He talked about augmented reality. He talked about AI and he talked as a service and he talked about additive manufacturing or, or uh, uh, digital printing. So uh, as a manufacturing person, that all resonates with me, but I wanna change the picture just slightly. Imagine you make stuff, but you don't make stuff in a building that you built that has a fixed address and wires running into it and everybody drives there in the morning. Imagine you're in the logistics business. I had clients doing final mile logistics. They, they installed refrigerators and dishwashers and other appliances. They showed up at a job site with something on a truck and then specialty trades, plumbers, carpenters, tile setters, electricians. And so they had to deliver this integrated service on the job site. Where are they gonna deliver next? I don't know. What are the happens if I have to reroute the truck? I gotta be somewhere else and reroute all the crews and the equipment. So having better connectivity, having the ability to have a technician, let's say, I'm installing a new kind of high-end dishwasher and I don't know how to do it. With my AR goggles, the technician from the manufacturer, which could be another country, can be looking at what I'm looking at and whispering in my ear and telling me, okay, look at that red knob over there, now turn it half a turn. So how do we change the business of in-home service or machinery repair? I worked at a project once with a company that inspected oil platforms. And they, they had to send experienced people because you'd fly out to an oil platform and it'd be what it was, very complicated, very different, and very greasy, very grimy, very hard to see. With a technology involving an iPad, I could bring up the blueprint on the iPad. I could hold up the iPad and have it see the equipment and say, oh, the machine you want to inspect is over there. And you'd climb on up, you'd scratch the grease off the nameplate, get the, the barcode, hold the iPad, and out would pop the inspection statistic. Now, now I could send a less experienced, less expensive tech. And if the tech needed some help, we didn't implement this, but it was there in the, in the offing, the experienced person from the manufacturer could be right there helping them troubleshoot. So for everything Tony talks about with 5G and AR, in a manufacturing plant, double it or triple it for logistics. And now look at construction. If I'm out in the field doing construction, I've got to get the data from and to the construction site. Where's the construction site? I had a client, I said, we're doing a project. Can I have an address of all the construction projects we're doing? We were doing hundreds of them. And they, nobody knew where the address was. HR couldn't tell me, um, engineering couldn't tell me, safety finally had the list. But nobody thought of that as being a corporate resource. And just even finding your projects because they move so often is a challenge in a lot of industries. So having these capabilities, 5G to send data to and from. My first point remember was I want an ERP with all the data in it. Well now I gotta get it into that system. And it doesn't work well if everything is paper clipboards and once a week or once a month, we send it up to headquarters. Uh, by the way, for clients, I typically draw a pyramid. We have data acquisition at the bottom. We gotta get the data from the field, from the factory, from the boat, from the truck, from the site. Then we have data aggregation. Once we've acquired it, I gotta put it somewhere so we can operate transactionally on that. That's the next level of my pyramid. I acquire it, I aggregate it into an ERP. And the top level of the pyramid is data analytics. Now that I've got the data and I can operate with it, how do I use it for error management, for forecasting, for control? So when you think about that hierarchy, 5G is enormously important for the, the, the bottom two layers. And, and then AR helps me all through the process because it allows me, especially in the social distancing world when we don't wanna get on a plane, it allows me to transport the eyes the ears, the mouth, and eventually the hands of that remote technician to wherever I'm working. I think Tony talked about healthcare when he was doing his, yeah. his uh, comment. I work in healthcare to some extent. Imagine that I could have a surgeon teleoperating using a device. You know, you put your arms in the glove box, you see them in atomic energy plants and other dangerous environments. Imagine I put my hands in the glove box, but the other end of that glove box is 5,000 miles away. Why not? Why not? Because of latency. I can't afford that 50 millisecond back and forth every time I do something. 
we talk about 5G, and I'll say, I'm getting a little geeky, I apologize. Everybody talks about 5G as bandwidth. It makes the pipe bigger. I can send more data. That's good. But even more important for what Tony's talking about, what I'm talking about, is something called latency. How long does it take for me to send the message and for it to come back? And you think, well, it's the speed of light. What are we talking about? Well, the speed of light's interesting physics, but there's a lot of steps between that optical sensor and my TV screen. Yeah. And every time we stop, it adds delay. And so we talk about delay being in the millisecond range, 20 milliseconds, 30 milliseconds, 50 milliseconds. That adds appreciably when I'm doing real-time work. If I'm working a milling machine, if I'm launching a rocket, if I'm operating on somebody's heart, I can't take that half a second delay. So 5G takes that 30, 40, 50 milliseconds down to two, three, four milliseconds to every data transmission. So when you're looking at this, think about what happens if our movements on the screen are not jerky like, like this, if they are smooth. And that's where 5G is gonna make a huge difference. Um, and the last thing Tony talked about in that group was additive manufacturing or 3D printing. If I've got a crew on a job site and they have to get a part from the warehouse, or even worse, have to get a part sent to them from somewhere that delays the customer satisfaction event. What if I could print it? What if I could print the rubber washer? What if I could print the hose? What if I could print the connector dynamically? Even more, what if I'm on a job site? I'm in the middle of nowhere. I'm on a barge off the coast, and now I've got to create a repair part for MRO, maintenance, repair, and operation, or a part that's going into something I'm building. If I could 3D print that, I could change the way I respond to unexpected events. So we talk about agility, optionality. We talk about not delaying a project. What's that? For want of a horseshoe nail, it was a poem as I was a kid. For want of the nail, the kingdom was lost. If I'm doing a, hundred million, a project on a $100 million asset and the asset breaks and I need a $50 ball bearing, can I make one? In the old days, the answer was heck no. In the days to come, the answer will be yes. And so whatever Tony sees in a factory that the Thomas people work with, when you get out into what I call structurally decentralized businesses, businesses that will never be in one place because that's not what they deliver, you've got to be looking at this 3D printing, AR, and better networking, 5G, as being even more transformative for that industry because it allows your people all over the world in any place they are to be as though they were down the hall from the warehouse, down the hall from the engineer, and down the hall from the executive. So what Tony talked about, as a manufacturer, I love it. As somebody working in these decentralized industries, I love it even more. Wayne, is, it's, uh, in some ways, it's uh, not a breakdown, but it's a redefinition of the sort of the boundaries of time and space that uh, we have all come to live with for so long. And I just wanted to touch on this one thing uh, related to that too, because I think it gets into a lot of what you're thinking about and what these boards and CEOs, the mindset they've got to have. Uh, I saw a, a short video the other day is with the uh, CEO of Novartis, uh, Vas Narasimhan, and he was uh, extremely eloquent in how he described this, but his fundamental point was, we in the pharmaceutical industry allowed ourselves to be trained to think that any new pharmaceutical product is going to take 10 years and cost $2 billion. Mm -hmm. So he said, we stopped thinking about other possibilities, about other options. He said, you know, that's it. So we're not mm -hmm. going to try this because we can't do that in 10 years or we, or it'll take more than wh whatever it was. You know, they just, they stopped imagining what could be possible because they imagined these boundaries around them. They were locked in. So all those things you talked about, additive manufacturing and AR um, and what 5G does, they're accelerators for business. And it goes back to your first key point here about, you know, rethink about what you do. Don't get caught in this efficiency trap and think about what you do being defined by the world outside and the demands on you, which are changing constantly, rather than there's this fixed set of stuff you're going to do today, tomorrow, and you hope along the way you can knock a minute off here and nickel off there. That's just, that's not the world as it is today. Forget what it's going to be like in a year from now. 
Absolutely. But, you know, when you talk about an industry like pharmaceuticals, I don't work in pharmaceuticals, but I do some work in healthcare. We talked about telemedicine recently, and I think the biggest changes in telemedicine had nothing to do with technology. They had to do with the fact that doctors couldn't practice across state lines, number one. If you were a doctor licensed in Texas, you couldn't go to uh, Oklahoma and practice medicine. But when the panic hit, the pandemic panic, they relaxed that rule. Now a doctor can practice nationally. So all of a sudden, I can shift medical resources and telemedicine, and that opens the floodgates. I've got doctors in places that may be lower wage, that may not be affected by COVID. They're not busy. So I can put them to work. Now, what, what's going to happen when we finally relax the boundary? Why can't a doctor in Mumbai or Vietnam with good training and pass the certification exams treat a person in New York City or in Houston, Texas? So it's a regulatory change. The other one was CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, another regulatory agency that said a telemedicine visit was not reimbursable like an in-person visit. They changed that temporarily and I hope permanently. So a lot of times when you think of a technology company, it's more, I like to say that Uber and Airbnb are not tech companies. They're law firms and lobbying companies. You know, now we accept what they do, but a lot of their early work was getting people to allow them to do what they do. And, and that, that goes back many years. I worked for a client that sold satellite TV. They, they sold Dish Network and, and DirecTV and that sort of stuff. When homeowners associations could not forbid you from putting those big KU dishes in your backyard, the industry exploded. Because for a while, the homeowners association could say you can't have one. Just like they could say in places you couldn't have solar panels on your roof. So a lot of what you're seeing that slows things down is regulatory barriers. I'm not arguing politics and I'm not arguing whether they're good or they're bad. But I'm telling you, in a lot of industries, we've grown up around a regulatory mechanism that maybe a lot of times you'll see it's rent-seeking. Why do we license beauticians as strictly in, as we do? Why do they need so many thousands of hours of training, more than a police officer, somebody told me, a bartender? It's well, so we can keep the supply down and keep the incumbents prepared. Now, there's lots of other arguments. I don't want to turn this into a political discussion, but we've got to be looking at where the regulations are that help or hurt. In, in medicine as well, there's one more innovation that's got, it's a double-edged sword. It used to be that nothing got published in medical research until it was peer-reviewed, number one, and it was published on very expensive paywall servers. I understand there are hospitals that spend six figures just giving their staff access to the journals online. What happened? Number one, the preprint servers started popping up with an X, they have server whatever with an X in their name. That means it hasn't been peer reviewed. Number two, they took the paywall down. So when you're publishing COVID research, you write an article and slam it out there and everybody can read it who knows where it is, which is millions of us. Now, double-edged sword. The first thing is new stuff gets distributed quickly. The, the, the bad side is there's not a lot of quality control like there was. So you'll see somebody called it science by headline and press release. New study says blah, 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 and the study had 12 people in it, or the study wasn't well controlled, or they have to walk those studies back. So uh, everything has unintended consequences. But in the drug industry, in the medical device industry, in the telemedicine industry, think about the cost of your control. I say this to my clients in private industry. Because we have a cool new ERP system, I can add 4,000 more approvals to everything. Because I can do it doesn't mean I should. So ask yourself for every regulation, for every barrier, what is the cost of that regulation and what's the value? I tell my clients, if you're going to hire one hourly person and you hire 5,000 a year, does the EVP have to approve it? No. If you're going to send a $100 million wire transfer, I think a few layers of preventive controls is a good idea. So, so that's my take on Novartis and their industry. If you, but then you gear your whole company around the 10-year cycle, by the way. You gear your whole company around the notion we're going to submit it, and next year they're going to answer us. So we all go off and do something else. It's efficiency and effectiveness. They built their company on the notion that it takes 10 years. They have not built their company on the notion that what if we got approval tomorrow? 
And so we've got to be as a CIO delivering that optionality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Wayne, I know you also had a a couple of thoughts about some recent comments made by our newest digital all-star Bonnie Tinder and uh, Bonnie's got a research company where she works with a lot of business customers who've bought technology to understand and evaluate the role of not only the uh, software vendors who are buying this stuff, but also the partners mm-hmm. that they're working with. And I, I know in your career, you've had lots and lots of experience with partners. Can you touch on a couple of points there? Sure. First of all, I didn't know there was a company like Bonnie's and she and I are going to obviously have to talk because I've hired many, many systems integrators, the partner she's talking about. So I didn't know there was somebody rating them and that's terrific. Uh, but there's a message to the C-suite and the board because they're going, why do I care about this? You care about it because a big project, ERP, core banking, electronic health records, people think of it as a tech project, but it's not. Stop thinking that way, board of directors. Stop thinking that way, CEO. It is a people project first. It's a change management project. It's getting 5,000 people to do something different than they were doing and maybe doing many things different. So bear, bear that in mind, number one. The second thing is it's about process. If you automate bad processes, all you get is garbage faster. You know, they say garbage in, garbage out, but I don't want to be a garbage multiplier. Right. If I can produce bad reports three times a day instead of <laughs> once a week, why is that helping me? So we got to be thinking about what, are we paving the cow path or are we designing the superhighway? So start with the people, then work on the process. Don't just say, implement what I've got in cool new software. The third thing is the tech. The tech has to enable that. And if your partner thinks of it as a tech project, send me all your diagrams of your processes and I'll implement them and let you know when we're done, you got the wrong partner. The partner should be talking about change management. The partner should be going to the board and saying, hey board, are you prepared to talk to your employees? Hey C-suite, are you prepared to talk to your employees and help drive the change as a champion? And then they ought to be saying, how do you help us design and build and implement and train people on a better process. Then, okay, do you know the technology? Are you Microsoft certified or Oracle certified or Workday certified? So let's start with that notion that the partners have to be thinking about the project that way, which is oftentimes not what they're doing. Um, Then I'll also say the partner has to use modern tools and processes themselves. If you look at some partner methodologies, They were devised when you thought of an SAP project or an Oracle project or an Infor project as a multi-year, 10-figure, nine-figure project. And especially when you're working with bigger SIs, their project methodology works great when you are a global 20 company and you want to automate 5,000 operations. I work in half, say half a billion to five or $10 billion companies. They don't need that heavyweight incremental waterfall or process. They need something more, I'm going to use agile or lean or scaled agile to throw acronyms out all day. It doesn't matter. It's got to be a more iterative, a more, let me show you a more venture capital startup MVP. What's my minimum viable product? So the partners I work with, and when I do a project, we iterate. Okay, what's the first thing going to look like? If we just put the software in out of the box, here's our processes, what do they look? Oh, man, that's, that's awful, that's awful. Hey, that's pretty good. And then how do we iterate in week or month or whatever cycles and show people? How does it work? Let me show you this. Oh, you don't like that? Let me change it. How does it look on your phone? Oh, you don't like that? Let me change it. What's the analytics report? No, that's not the report the board expects. Let me change it. And then you keep iterating. And what happens is two things. One, everybody in the company that cares sees this stuff regularly. It's not the little skunk works team over there in Mumbai doing it, and then they throw the code out and 5,000 people have to learn it. The users, the key users are using it all the time. They're used to it. Number one. Number two, maybe you can drop a piece of it out. For example, if you're doing CRM, customer relationship management, Salesforce automation. I don't need an entire general ledger implemented to do my sales funnel. So why can't I release that to the salespeople first? Or maybe I've got contact center technology. Why can't I put that on top of my old software and then change it down the road? Payroll and benefits. Why can't I start piecing this stuff up and change the way we deliver software? 
to be a much more agile, to be a much more optionality-driven, much more effectiveness-driven. Where are these messages coming together? We want to have a company that works this way, with processes that work this way, with partners that work this way. So the message to the board is, don't just trust your partner to the age-old company you've used. Ask about these things. And then you can have a process that gets you from where you are now to where you need to be as effectively as possible. Wayne, great takes on, you know, some really interesting ideas here uh, that, that you, you've summarized. I think as always, you know, you bring a perspective to it that is relevant for people at the top of companies and throughout there. And I know you said you don't often speak with CIOs, but I thought that was great advice you offered to everybody throughout it as well. And again, uh, I, I just think this is a really interesting approach. Thanks for doing a lot of research and a lot of uh, homework on this with some of the other digital all-stars to be able to see what they're talking about and add your own unique insights to it. Well, as I said, it was terrific watching some of the other material you've been producing. And um, I've met some interesting people through their videos and hope we can continue a partnership. Well, great, Wayne. And uh, Cloud Wars Live is now uh, viewed in over 100 countries around the world. So I think uh, we've got a, a reach and a range that is, uh, shows that the things that you and the other digital all-stars are talking about are pretty good. So thanks very much for that. Thanks for uh, always you know, good insights on this. And also everybody, thanks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We know that there's lots of things going on in your lives right now, work lives, home lives, everything. And uh, as Wayne talked about, I think pretty, uh, pretty profoundly here, this is how it is going forward. We hope to be able to help along the way with some ideas about you know, where the world's headed and so on. Um, thanks for being with us as always. Wayne, special thanks to you. And uh, I hope things are good with you and we'll see you again soon. Take care. Take care, everybody. And again, I love comments. I love questions. I even love arguments. So let's interact. The guy's from Brooklyn. What can he say? <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time here at Cloud Wars Live.